I was listening to um, some people talk earlier this week on a podcast that I'll, I'll recommend at some point uh, on the Facebook page, but uh, these guys were talking about how our culture is more and more becoming post-Christian. That, uh, and, and that's different than a, than a pre-Christian or pagan culture. That's different than a kind of predominantly Christendom, Christianized culture. Uh, it, and it, uh, it's, it's not either of those things. And one of, the, one of the side effects of that, or one of the issues with that, is that uh, actually uh, what, what happens is, is that we kind of, in this post-Christian culture, begin to seek the kingdom. We kind of have this, this sense of there are still Christian morals and values, and, and our culture has been deeply influenced by, uh, by Christianity and what Jesus calls us to in the kingdom of God. But, but it's... But, when people are saying, yeah, but we, we want all that stuff that Jesus gives, but not Jesus, it's a sort of kingdom without a king is the way to understand it. And, and that more and more, I feel like people are beginning to experience that, to see that, to, to understand that at work. And, and, the, and one of the issues with that is that the Bible has become, in a way, uh, it, for many people, uh, th- they have like moral questions about whether or not we should look to the scriptures. Like, can we actually trust this book that was written so long ago that is filled with so many stories of, of sexism and violence and like all the garbage that human beings do is recorded in this book? And so how can something written by those kinds of people uh, be in any way authoritative? How can we trust uh, these scriptures? How can we trust these stories? And as I was reflecting on this, I just thought it's so important for us to understand narrative. It is so important for us to understand where we are in the story of God and where we find ourselves and our identity in that story. That if you will, the power of narrative, and I believe that this book is in fact one narrative, even though it is written over centuries uh, by different groups of people who, you know, separated by generations and, and time and different countries and different nations, uh, that, that, that it's one story. And stories really are such a human way to understand the world. It is so important for us to have a story to connect to in order to make sense of anything. So, you know, one example might be the story of how we understand America to have come into existence. We're a revolutionary people, right? We rebelled against our king, and we took freedom for ourselves. That's sort of the narrative of our country. But one thing that's kind of being uncovered, especially as more uh, voices that aren't white males and white uh, landowners uh, start, to, start to tell that story, they tell the story that is... Um, you know, kind of real, uh, which is that, that yeah, the, the, the revolutionaries who founded our country, they threw off the, uh, the, the rule of their king, but they threw off the rule of their king so that they could continue to oppress people in slavery and profit from that free labor. That's a part of that story. It's a part of that narrative of what our country is. And so if we don't understand that story we might not understand the world the way that it really is. Stories help us make sense of what is real. They help us make sense of our reality and help us come to some sort of grips with what truth is and how we experience it. Uh, I would say that 
uh, that identity even is, is, can be understood as a sort of story, that who we are is very much, um, very much informed and, and shaped by our experiences, particularly our early experiences in life. So much of who we become and the type of person that we continue to be in adulthood is formed in those early years and in those, those early experiences where we're kind of finding our story, our backstory, or our origin story often happens at the first half of life. And, and understanding identity in, in many ways to understand who a person is, is to understand their story. Uh, it, it, in the same way, uh, the sense of shared stories that we have with other people, it could be understood as what a relationship is. In many ways, what a relationship is, is time spent together sharing a common experience of life. That as we share another person's story, and as we understand who that person is, what what their history is, and, and then we walk and do life and we, we write a story of our own experiences together, that's really what a relationship is in so many ways. Uh, in, in many ways, what makes marriage such a beautiful picture of the connection between Christ and his church is this, this commitment to share a story, to share a life together uh, until death, to put the time uh, of that commitment into that relationship and to, to share a life together, to write a common story that we share with another person. That's, that's what a shared, uh, that's what, in, in many ways, what makes marriage such a deep connection is the time commitment. I would say that there's very, something similar going on in church communities, that, that particularly in this community, I think it's a beautiful thing that many of us have shared many, many, many hours, many days, many years of time doing life together, of, of supporting one another, of, of praying and, and experiencing God together in powerful ways, and that has brought a sense of stability and support, identity and relationship in our church, and I'm very encouraged by that truth and by that story that I get to experience. I think it's for these reasons that the Bible continues to be, throughout the ages, a sort of grounding anchor to faith, that in many ways, orthodoxy is preserved. The, the core of what it means to follow Jesus is preserved in and around reading and sharing this story and trying to continue to live the story that we see in the scriptures out in our lives. And the biblical story is really important. And so even if it seems countercultural, even if it seems at odds with what we might think of as a vision of the good life or what is sold to us uh, in this device all the time as the vision of the good life, uh, even if what we read here is at odds with, what, with all the other things that pop up in, on notifications here, that, that this has got a lot more staying power than this does, right? Like, this has been around for relatively a few seconds in the history of the, of the world. This has lasted for two millennia. Uh, and what I think is really great is that you can actually find this on here, right? That's, that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But as I've been praying and thinking about the direction our church is going, 
I feel like it's really important for us to focus on and to continue to explore the book of Acts. And so we're going to keep looking at Acts uh, and, and understand it as a, a model for our church and for the church in the world, that this early community of, of Jesus followers, the, their deeds and their way of life and the way that they, and being so proximate to the life of Jesus and the way of Jesus, uh, can instruct us how to pursue what God is doing and what he is about. Of course, Acts comes after a lot of the Bible, right? You know, Acts is maybe right, uh, let me just look it up right here, right? Okay, there's all this stuff that comes before that informs what happens in this part of the book. And we see that at work in this particular passage and I just think it's important for us to, from time to time, kind of reorient where we are in the grand narrative of humanity, in the grand story of what God is doing in the world, to see ourselves and to see the smallness, to see the, to see the briefness of our life in view of this much larger story that God is telling and that God is writing in the history of the world. Um, and I believe that Acts is that. And what we see in the story that we're about to read is we see the story of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And I thought Johnny did such a great job, especially in his brevity of setting this up and and just uh, showing how Stephen was kind of like an average guy, right? He was a person who was serving in the church. He was he was doing the work that maybe was not super glorious of helping uh, widows and and, and orphans, uh, you know get cared for by the church's generosity. Uh, and, and, and then he becomes this important fig- figure. He becomes an honored figure in the history of the church because of what happens in this story. And in this story, we read and understand how this word that, that originally meant witness becomes a word that describes a person who dies for a cause. And we see how Stephen's identity is grounded in the story of God through the ages. And we watch how he traces the movement of God throughout human history to show Israel's disobedience and God's faithfulness and how God worked in and with all of Israel's enemies to accomplish what he had hoped to bring about in the people of Israel. And we see this this continuation in the story and, and, and the likeness of Stephen in Jesus, even and perhaps especially in the moments of his death. It is unmistakable how the signature of Jesus has, is written on the life of Stephen uh, in his response to the violence uh, that he suffers at the hands of people who claim to know God. And so I actually want to do this and perhaps reverse order. A lot of times I'll read the scripture and then we pray and then we kind of reflect on it. I want us to pray first and ask God to speak to us as we read. So Lord, I ask that we would hear and listen to your voice, that we would be inspired by this life and that as we look at this sermon within a sermon, uh, God, that you will speak to us in a way that's deep, in a way that connects to the past and that calls us into your future. Uh, and I just ask that we be able to experience your voice now in Jesus' name. And so picking up 
uh, where Johnny left off, off last week in verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. So he didn't just stick with waiting tables, right? Uh, that as, as he began to serve, as he began to uh, participate in the life of his community and, and serve the needs of that community, he grew and became a person who was full of God's grace and power and performed great wonders and signs among the people. He's healing people. He's doing prophetic ministry. He's casting out demons, doing all of the stuff that we read about in the book that we do in this church when we pray for each other and when we pray for our neighbors, hopefully, right? Man, full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition, however, arose from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews from Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. I want to notice here that it's not the wisdom that he earned through deep study, that he earned through... Uh, though I'm sure he did actually do that, uh, th- th- that it's not the wisdom that he earned through the power of his intellect, right? But it's wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we've heard Stephen, Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And, you know, here's the thing. A lot of times, the skepticism surrounding what's really the work of God, uh, if it really is the work of God, the skepticism and resistance to that uh, has to rely on a falsehood in order to be perpetrated. I just think that that's noteworthy as we look at this. I'm not saying that every criticism of the church is a lie or that every criticism of something that I've done is a lie. I'm certainly a very flawed human being. Uh, But uh, it is interesting here to see how lies and truth uh, create this power struggle for what's real and what's going on in the story. They say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders of the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting at the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? And then here we find the sermon within a sermon. And to this he replied, brothers and fathers, right? He's speaking to his Israelite leaders and, you know, like, Church members, like these are people that Stephen grew up with as a, as a Hellenistic Jew. These are people who claim to love God, who are, who are in his church, if you will, in his, in his faith community, in his synagogue, who he has known and who I imagine he probably respected. He shows them respect by calling them fathers. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on, but God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way, For 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved 
and mistreated, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said, and afterward they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and, and circumcised him eight days later after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then famine struck all of Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. And when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent for our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers about who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. When Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died, their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from, from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At this time, Moses was born. And he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. And when he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw them. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would recognize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And when he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And he went over to, to get a closer look. He heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to take a look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses who they had rejected with the words, who made you judge and ruler? He was sent to, their, he was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. There we go. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him, and their hearts turned back to Egypt. And they told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. And for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 
That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? You have taken up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received a law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. He'll become important later. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which of course is a euphemism for dying. Okay, that was quite a few verses, right? And if I were to to preach in a manner uh, that was verse by verse, uh, and, and pulling all the deep meaning out of every single verse, we would be here for a very long time. I could preach a sermon series on those verses. But this is a scene, right? This is one scene. This is all one thing together. This is, this is a chunk uh, of, of one thing that happened. And oftentimes, the chunks that are in the Bible don't match up nicely for what makes a nice sermon on Sunday morning. And so I want us to learn how to deal with that, how to read that, okay? But uh, here's the thing that I think we should take from this passage. I think this, there are a couple things that I think are for us as a community. One, we see how rooted Stephen is in the scriptures. We see how the story of God is such a part of him that just at the drop of a hat, he knows it. He can tell the story. He can start with Abraham and end up to where they are in the story and, and have a, con, a, a cohesive whole. He knows the story. He knows the, where he is in the story. He knows his role as a follower of Jesus, the last prophet to Israel whom Israel rejected and killed on a cross. 
he knows that he is to preach that that crucified Messiah is in fact the resurrected Lord and hope of Israel and the whole world. And he is calling these leaders to account for their mistreatment of Jesus in an attempt to, that they might be restored, that they might be uh, redeemed, that they might not go the way that so many humans have gone in the past, and particularly even the people who call themselves the people of God have gone in the past. I think there's a, a warning to us as people who, I hope, see ourselves as people of God in this story, as well as an invitation and a challenge to be like Stephen in this story, to be the kind of people who, as we're getting rocks thrown at us until we die, can say in honesty and with intensity, Lord, don't hold this against them because they don't know what they're doing. That we would be motivated by such a love that we would be so formed and shaped by the character of Christ that we could forgive at that level, that we could, that we could show grace and mercy at that level to our neighbors, to our friends, to our frenemies, and even our enemies, that we could love them the way that Christ loved them. There's a call to action here. And there's a price to pay understanding Stephen as a type, as an example, as a sort of model for what a Christian looks like, for what a Christian looks like. Witnesses of Christ who have seen him, who have been touched by him, who have, been, who have had an encounter with him, those witnesses suffer. It's just the story of God at work in this dark world. And I think the temptation for us at this time in history, especially with a lot of really sketchy church history, right? Like there, there, there's a lot of church history that looks more like the people who are throwing rocks at Stephen than, than what looks like Stephen, right? And we have to be honest with that. We have to tell the truth about that. And we have to reckon with that. But I think that there's an invitation here to, to resist the temptation to believe something other than what has come before, other than this example of Stephen and all of the people who hung out and spent the most time with Jesus, all of his closest disciples, with, with the exception of the one who betrayed him and committed suicide, all of them died violent deaths because of their refusal to deny what they had seen and heard in God. And I wonder sometimes, do we want to see God move the way that we see him move in this, in this book? Do we really want to see the dead rise, to see demons cast out, to see healing take place? Are we willing to pay the price of what experiencing those things would bring in our lives? John Wimber used to say, uh, as he had a really kind of notable healing ministry that kind of launched this church planting movement known as the Vineyard, people want the power that he demonstrates, the power that he has, but they don't want the suffering. They don't want the pain that goes with it. God gives us grace to endure, and there's a sense in which when we experience the goodness of God, when we experience the miraculous, when we experience the power of 
God does that in a way to prepare us, to, to ground us in such a way that we can endure the challenges ahead. And I just believe that it's very important for witnesses of Jesus to witness his whole life, to witness the healing, to witness the power, but to witness the way that that is rejected by the very people who should be the most willing to accept it and the suffering that results from being a person who follows God no matter what, even to death and death on a cross. We should be people who anticipate challenge, who anticipate struggle, especially in this moment in the history of the church in the United States. I don't believe that things are going to get easier. I want to tell you that, oh, you know, come on, just keep showing up and giving in and, and pretty soon everything will be all right. I don't believe that that's the future. I, I, I think that things are on the downhill, on the downswing, and that things are going to get harder. It's going to get harder to follow Jesus in the years to come. And if we don't anticipate that, if we don't expect that, then we're going to have a faith crisis. If we think that doing this thing is supposed to be easy, then Satan will use that to lie to us and tell us that we've failed. Satan will twist our very common experience in the history of the church, in the history of the world, of suffering for Christ, and he'll twist that and he'll say, see, this is harder than it's supposed to be. If only you, you know, you, you've already failed. You might as well give up. I just don't believe that that's true. I believe that this is kind of supposed to be hard. I believe that the life of, of following Jesus is a life of sacrifice. It's a life of, of giving. It's a life of, of setting aside our privilege to serve. And so if we don't anticipate pushback, resistance, within our own hearts and in the world, then we will be ill-prepared for the cost uh, that it takes to follow Jesus in this world and in this life. The world is just so much darker than we want to believe that it is. It's difficult to face the realities of what living on earth is like when the world has turned its back on God. But that is actually the world that we live in. And we have to be willing to face that. We have to be willing to face that out there, and we have to be willing to face that in here. And our deep need for the redemption that only Christ can offer. I believe that redemption is, is, is here, it is palpable, and it is available to us. And I think the other thing that we need to remember is that the kingdom of God is worth everything. It is worth it. The reward that Stephen received and even began to receive as his life was fading on earth, he, he got a glimpse of where he was headed at the end of his life. He got a glimpse of that coming kingdom. He saw a vision, even as the rocks were being thrown, even as the, the, the things were coming apart at the seam. His, his earthly end was his eternal beginning because of the grace of God at work in his life. And many people who read this book and who, who wrote this story had experienced that kind of intense resistance. They had re experienced that kind of intensity. And people continue to lose their lives for this. People continue to, 
to give all that they have to understand and experience God's leadership in their lives. And so we as comfortable American, perhaps in Springfield, Missouri, even privileged as Christians, believers, need to wrap our minds around that this is worth everything and it will cost everything that we have. God is worthy of that. But the reward is so great. The reward is so good to see God break into the world and to redeem people from the slow march towards doom that the entire world is experiencing on a daily basis. And we try to distract ourselves. Well, that's kind of convenient. That happened too. We try to distract ourselves, right? With all kinds of treasure and with all kinds of trinkets and with all kinds of entertainment. But so much of it is just image. So much of it is ethereal. So much of it is immaterial. It is, in many ways, not true, the, the, the things that we look to to distract us from reality of this present evil age and the darkness that is very real and that we experience on a daily basis. When we reckon with that and then we find the healing and the redemption that is offered in Christ, when we find that redemption and healing as we welcome his presence in prayer, when we find that redemption and healing and salvation of our, of our eternal souls and in our present lived experience, we see that this is worth everything. We stand on the shoulders of these giants who have come before us, who have given their lives, who, who you know, packed all their belongings into a coffin to go and tell this message to people who had never heard it. We stand on the shoulders of these people who have given everything that they have in order that God may reign and rule in their lives. And I believe that the reward is worth it. It's not worth comparing the goodness and the glory of God that we begin to experience now in this life and that we will experience in eternity when he returns. And so this morning, the invitation and the opportunity is to get our hearts right before God, to really commit ourselves again to what he is calling us to, to be like Stephen in our radical obedience and adopt his way of life. Would you stand? Uh, we're going to take some time to pray for one another. The reason we do the offering at the beginning is so that we can hopefully do this without distraction. As I was preparing... Um, even just this morning and, and praying about this, I felt like God brought a few things to mind. Um, one is physical healing. And I know that's kind of vague, but if you've got any kind of a physical ailment, I just, I believe that God wants to show up today in a way that is tangible in our bodies. And I believe he wants to do that so that we are empowered so that we face courage. I believe that there's an experience of God available to us today so that if you need physical healing or you want to be the kind of person who does that, that God will empower you today. And I think for some of us that looks like courage to try again. 
kingdom's now and not yet. And I know that many of us, it's, we're like those guys that have been fishing all night and who didn't caught and catch anything. We just feel like we just keep trying, we just keep trying, and we're not catching anything. And I feel like God is saying, go out on the boat again and throw the net off on this side. And you know what that means. And so I just want to encourage us, let's get prayer for that. The other thing that um, we got this morning is that uh, there's an invitation to prune our hearts. To prune our hearts of all the weights and concerns that are not rooted in Jesus. And this isn't giving up things as much as disconnecting from them and putting them in their place so that they don't have power over us. Um, And so if any of that resonates with you, or if you just want prayer for literally any reason, would you please come forward? Someone who's been trained on our prayer team will just put their hand on your shoulder, ask how they can pray for you in confidence. Let's experience God today.